The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin with lines from John Keats. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy. Though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee, tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. Those lines are from Ode to a Nightingale. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who had some of the best titles in all literature and some of the very worst working titles, pulled from his beloved Keats for his fourth novel. We'll discuss that novel, Tender is the Night, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Mike Palindrome will be here in a little bit. He and I have been reading this book for about 30 years or so. It's a classic, much more interesting to me than Gatsby, at least this time around, but also less perfect. It's lumpier. It's rougher. It's more raw. Gatsby is the work of an artist under control, buffing his work to a high sheen. Tender is the Night is the work of an artist coming apart at the seams. Still brilliant, maybe even exhibiting more genius, or at least more depth and ambition than before, but you feel as if he's starting to to drop beneath the surface. There's a famous scene in Tender is the Night where Dick Diver, the protagonist, and Fitzgerald's stand-in, is attempting to do a water skiing trick that he easily performed a few years before, but now he's struggling and everyone notices and they recall his previous ease and they feel sorry for him. And he insists that he can do it and he's kind of good-natured about it, but he's failing. Failing and flailing, and it's more than just the passage of time and the aging process. You feel like he's beaten, as if life is crushing him in its grip. That's the difference between the two books, published nine years apart. Gatsby is Fitzgerald up on the skis, sailing along, the sun bright and high, and the wind pushing his curly hair back off his forehead. A huge smile. The party continues. He knows the crash may be coming, but the hangover... Well, that's for tomorrow. Tender as the night is the battered body, unable to lift itself back into position. He's dragged along behind the boat, lucky to survive, still possessed of a kind of will, dogged and determined. Bones cracking, joints jerked out of place. It's all fascinating to read, if a little pathetic. What? took him into this place. His own flaws and weaknesses, no doubt, his fascination with wealth, his alcoholism, his reckless conduct. His ego was large. His youthful excesses were ill-considered. His judgment in life was not good. 
and his marriage was an explosive threat. Zelda was everything that he had wanted as a young man, beautiful, stunning, vivacious, a firecracking intelligence, but she was restless and stifled. She was not well, and the reasons have been argued about, the extent to which the marriage had led to her own breakdown. There were genetics at play as well. There was a father, perhaps an abusive one, in the background. There were reasons why it's unfair to lay her mental illness solely at Scott's feet, but it's hard to justify some of his actions too. He was supportive of her, to be fair, whether it was her plays, her painting, her articles, and her or her hospitalization. She complained that he didn't take the South and the heroes of the Confederacy seriously enough. I'm not going to criticize him for that. His support had its limits. He helped her publish her novel, but he exhibited signs of professional jealousy. I can't write my novel, he complained, because of her hospitalization and all that that is meant for me financially and spiritually. It's drained me and my creative powers, and yet she she wrote hers as therapy for her while she was in the institution. Hardly seems fair, was Scott's point of view. Even as he was encouraging her and, and putting her forward, he seems to have hoped that others would discourage her, not praise her too much, and critics did just that, did that job for him, savaging her book in a way that was probably unfair. And, of course, Fitzgerald had lifted from her diaries and letters when he was riding his own comet into the sky, his comet of success. It seems Mr. Fitzgerald believes, she famously wrote, that plagiarism begins at home. The years from 1925, when Gatsby was published, and 1934, when Tender as the Night, written and rewritten, finally came out, are a period of crash. The stock market collapsed, and the Fitzgeralds crashed and collapsed, too. Scott became interested in an actress named Lois Moran, who became one of the models for Rose, Rosemary Hoyt in the novel that he was writing. Zelda set fire to her clothes in a bathtub, to protest the relationship, she threw herself down a flight of marble stairs because he was talking to the dancer Isadora Duncan. She accused her husband of being a closeted homosexual, in the language of the day, and insinuated that he and Ernest Hemingway had a sexual relationship. Goaded by her snide comments, Fitzgerald went out and bought condoms and was planning to have sex with a Parisian prostitute prove himself. Zelda found the condoms, and the two of them fought instead. This was not an ideal marriage. At the age of 28, Zelda decided to become a professional ballerina, practicing eight hours a day and living her dream the other 16. It was clear to everyone but her that she had started too late to be truly good, although her tutor thought that because of her hard work, and the innate talent she had had that she probably could dance professionally somewhere, maybe not a star, but she could catch on. But Zelda's body didn't hold up. She, she basically collapsed from the effort, and her exhausted mind kind of went with it. Once Fitzgerald came home, Scott came home, and she was Zelda was sitting on the floor, entranced by a pile of sand, unable to speak. 
Doctors diagnosed her with various mental ailments. She became a danger to herself. She was put in the care of nurses. She broke down, broke down frequently, wandered off multiple times, lost. She tried to kill herself by throwing herself in front of a train. She attacked their guests in and out of institutions. Literary critic and old friend Edmund Wilson in 1928, recounted a dinner party. And he said, quote, I sat next to Zelda, who was at her iridescent best. Some of Scott's friends were irritated. Others were enchanted by her. I was one of the ones who were charmed. She had the waywardness of a southern belle and the lack of inhibitions of a child. She talked with so spontaneous a color and wit, almost exactly in the way she wrote, that I very soon ceased to be troubled by the fact that the conversation was in the nature of a free association of ideas, and one could never follow up anything. I have rarely known a woman who expressed herself so delightfully and so freshly. She had no ready-made phrases on the one hand and made no straining for effect on the other. It evaporated easily, however, and I remember only one thing she said that night, that the writing of Galsworthy was a shade of blue for which she did not care. End quote. In 1936, Scott said of her, Zelda now claims to be in direct contact with Christ, William the Conqueror, Mary Stuart, Apollo, and all the stock paraphernalia of insane asylum jokes. For what she has really suffered, there is never a sober night that I do not pay a stark tribute of an hour or two in the darkness. In an odd way, perhaps incredible to you, she was always my child. It was not reciprocal, as it often is in marriages. I was her great reality, often the only liaison agent who could make the world tangible to her. End quote. This was the relationship, his view of it, that he had imported into his novel, Tender as the Night. Dick Diver a budding young psychiatrist, falls in love with a patient at the institution where he works, Nicole. As the two travel through Europe, living in hotels and spending her family's money, one step ahead of father time and a half a step ahead of the, the party's over, and then maybe a half a step behind both of those things, the doctor-patient relationship begins to overwhelm the love affair. Her need for him and the obligation toward her that he feels in return are heavy debts for both of them to pay. She has an affair. He considers one. There are duels to be fought and negotiations to be reached. Fitzgerald's first two novels are the work of a bright young man looking forward. His later books are the works of an old soul looking back. Tender as the night has moments of great beauty, but you never escape the haunted quality of a doomed couple, a doomed individual protagonist, doomed lives, doomed worlds. Gatsby asks the question, what if we waste our lives and talent and our chance at love? Tender as the night answers, it will be hell and it will look like this. Zelda's problems continued. She tried to throw herself out of a moving car. She lost a tennis match at the sanatorium in Asheville, North Carolina, and attacked her tennis partner. 
and beat them over the head with her racket. Driving, she grabbed the wheel and jerked it on a mountain road and nearly killed herself, Scott, and their daughter. She and Scott, nevertheless, continued to write to one another throughout her hospitalization. Fitzgerald once said, I don't mind if she dies as long as she's not with someone else. That was his early take on the relationship. Kind of continued through. Seems to be the way both of them felt about one another. Elizabeth Hardwick said of reading their letters that one constantly has to scan the page to find the signature in order to tell which one of them was writing which letter. They finished each other's sentences. They were joined spiritually, emotionally, nostalgically, together, lifting into the air like fireworks, crashing to the ground when the flash and sizzle burned out. Zelda outlived Scott. She couldn't attend his funeral. Later in life, she found that fascism appealed to her. She liked the order that it promised, something to control the chaos. She died in a horrible fire at the institution, identified, it was said, by one of the slippers beneath her foot. The ashes had started long before. Fitzgerald tried to turn them into a phoenix with his novel, and maybe art is strong enough to succeed in doing that, or something similar. We have, out of the wreckage, Zelda's novel, Save Me the Waltz, and Scott's novel, Tender is the Night, which we will turn to now, with the help of our old friend, Mike Palindrome, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club in New York City on the Isle of Manhattan. Mike Palindrome, longtime F. Scott Fitzgerald fan, welcome to the history of literature. Hey, Jack. So, Tender is the Night, I'm going to say, 
F. Scott Fitzgerald plus a European sanitarium plus cavorting through France plus a hostile marital breakup. It's sort of like four for four for Mike Palindrome. (laughs) (laughs) It's touching all of your buttons. (laughs) Yeah, you asked me what are the strengths, what are the flaws. And so, yeah, it was was hard to pack it all in, but... um, I guess we should just start with when I first read it, which yeah. is part of the the brainwashing. I, I read it in Paris in five days when I was 19. Mm. I had just read This Side of Paradise, a biography of Fitzgerald, and I never, I almost never read writer biographies. Mm. Mm-hmm. Was this the one, the Matthew Brucoli one? No, this, this is where I confess it was like a 120-page biography oh. with pictures. Yeah, (laughs) that that gives you my taste for biographies. But and then I read two collections of his flappers and philosophers and the diamond as big as the Ritz. And then I also read the Pat Hobby stories. Yeah, three three collections. I view the Pat Hobby stories as kind of the uh, the real test of somebody who has. gone into a a Fitzgerald deep dive. If you get to the Pat Hobby stories, you know you've that's like that's like diving into the deep end of the pool and and coming up and saying, oh, I actually hit bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I read them chronologically because I was surprised to hear that he was paid like Hemingway. He was paid very well for short story writing, which is, you know, pretty interesting. A lot more than his novels. Yeah, he he really he funded his novels by publishing short stories yeah and and then i read the beautiful and the damn so i was reading chronologically yeah uh, and then i read tender as the night so and i i read it in five days i was dating a young woman who would later become my wife i had spent weeks in france so i was kind of i had this rhythm where i would go i would take a walk in the morning and read it in luxembourg gardens for a couple hours Mm. Mm mm-hmm before I did some sightseeing and then I would have a beer at lunch, a very cheap lunch and then do some more sightseeing. And then at night I would read some more Mm, by myself. So, well, I think a lot of listeners just to kind of loop them in before we get back to you, I think a lot of people are probably have probably read the great Gatsby in school or just because it's, you know, such Mm -hmm. a prominent novel and they're probably thinking, well, I liked it. You know, if they loved it, they've probably already gotten to other Fitzgerald. But if they liked it or they were sort of indifferent, they probably want to know, well, should I read this one? Should I keep going with Fitzgerald? And is Tender is the Night something I should keep going with? And I think the answer is yes, right? I think that would be our recommendation. Yeah, I, I, I love reading chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I used to love reading chronologically. Now what I do is I'll read the first novel and then go to the best novel. Mm. Okay, which, that makes sense. Which would be, I mean, I, I think Great Gatsby, everyone reads in high school. So in that sense, it is kind of like the first novel of his you read, mm-hmm. even though This Side of Paradise is technically his first novel. And then I think you could just jump to Tender as the Night because... I've read Tender as the Night six times. I've read The Great Gatsby twice, and I haven't read any of his other works more than once, other than a couple of short stories like Babylon Revisited. I've re- read half a dozen times. Mm, right. I was going to say 
if we had a, a must-read for Fitzgerald, maybe it's Gatsby and then the short stories, at least the best, you know, maybe the top 10 short stories. Yeah. And then uh, Tender is the Night would be right there. And then after that, I mean, The Beautiful and Damned is probably last. I, I sort of have The Last Tycoon as kind of an interesting read, but it wasn't finished. And This Side of Paradise is, I think that's really getting into, you have to be kind of a hardcore fan to enjoy that. I think anyone who's interested in Princeton mm, and right. Eden Clubs and Yale and Harvard should check it out. I, yeah. I, I, it's kind of a dark horse for me. I, I, I enjoyed it. That whole era of yeah. uh, being a college student at that time. And, and it, it, I mean, Fitzgerald, there's always something that, is worth reading it's the prose is always pretty lively and vivid and it's not like any of them are outright bad i just think some of them a little less well formed than others yeah yeah i think he he had so many nuanced ideas of the wealthy mm -hmm. that after a while you just need a little break <laughs> yeah and what i like about Tender is the Night, one of the things is I was also about to recommend a crack up. And mm -hmm. if you're interested in him and in him as a writer and him as a figure kind of trying to hold things together, some of those later essays and even like the Pat Hobby stories are, are pretty interesting. But Tender is the Night is where we really see that coming into his art. Yeah, it's it's just a powerhouse. I mean, I've read it six times. I've read the version that most people have encountered five times, and then I've read that alternate version, yeah. which we, we can talk about later. But I will say the other thing is, I these days, I tend to read books quite slowly, uh, rarely more than 20 pages of a book mm -hmm. a day, because I'm also reading 10 books at a time. And so, but I, for this <laughs> For this podcast, I read Tender is the Night at breakneck speed, about <laughs> 50 to 75 pages a day. So, Right. And, and I should mention, a lot of that is because you're doing slow reads on Twitter uh, yeah. with a group of people where you read 10 pages a day or something as according to a schedule. You all read it the same day and then you make comments on it and you're kind of able to get things off your chest, but also to get feedback and just it's kind of like a book club, but it's not where you read the whole book and then meet and discuss it it's where you take it in small chunks yeah i think the reading and being focused on 10 pages lends this intensity that i think everyone has come to appreciate whether they're academics or quasi-academics or just like lovers of literature who i encountered many people who read 30 to 50 novels a year which is so such a good good sign right okay so, so you had Five readings of Tender is the Night under your belt when we proposed doing this one for the podcast. What was your impression? Were you excited to go into it? Were you thinking, well, I've read that. I've probably uh, seen all there is to see. Or were you sort of dreading it as, as overly familiar? Were you excited about it? I was really excited about it because it's been eight years since mm -hmm. I last read it. And I feel like I have this irrational love for it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a love that's endured. We were saying in a previous episode, like Amos says, like time is the great reviewer, the great critic. And so I was curious to see how much of it, how much of it I loved, because I know I have an irrational love. And I, I was just, you know, bowled over yet again, just how much is going on. Like you were saying, it's 
it's kind of like four novels packed into one, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and just like the romantic aspect, to me, there are two romances going on with, I guess we should kind of warn people. I want to try not to mention one secret in this, mm. in this novel, but other than that, I feel like you could listen to this podcast and still enjoy it, but the, there are two romances, Dick Diver and his wife, Nicole, and then Dick Diver and this young American actress, Rosemary. And so I just love the balance of this book, mm. the settings, like you were saying. Yeah. And just how it shifts from like this philosophical way to live your life if you have money and a lot of luck. And then these romances and things, kind of things that preoccupied American expats. I mean, you have, there's just so much going on. I was, you know, I loved it. I mean, how about you? How many times have you read it? Well, I'd say this probably was maybe about my fourth because Mm -hmm. I know I've read this version at least twice before. And I read like you, I read the alternate version. So maybe just to explain the alternate version to people. So this book starts with, it, it basically works with a flashback. So you start out with Rosemary, this young Hollywood starlet who's on the beach at the French Riviera at a hotel with her mother. And she encounters this expatriate community, which includes Dick and Nicole Diver, who are the main protagonists of the novel, as well as some others. And she kind of falls in love with this whole scene, and she especially falls in love with Dick. And that's how the novel begins. And then that's book one. And then book two jumps back in time and you see Dick Diver as a young doctor and his relationship with Nicole and how that got started. And then it goes on from there. And then you jump back to the the period after Rosemary and it picks up again where the book one had ended. So there had been some complaints about the chronology of it, that it shifted around, but it really is the way the book should be because book one you're learning secrets about the divers that are slowly unfolding. And it's very kind of suspenseful and it's very intriguing. It feels almost like a, like Jane Eyre or something. There's this mad woman in the attic aspect to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you get to see, uh, yeah, I completely agree that the flashback version is the version everyone, most people have read is, is much stronger because I love my favorite character is Nicole and I love the fact that you get this one portrait in book one and then you get this completely different portrait in Mm. book two Mm -hmm. and then you get a third different portrait in book three of Nicole. Right. And it's the love that I I think we can bring this in here. The love that Fitzgerald had for Zelda is Mm -hmm. very clear and Zelda loved this novel, <laughs> but you make what you will of that. But this was her favorite work of his. And she said that it's, it's a beautiful, sad novel. I mean, that, that was mm. her, yeah. you know, her blurb. And um, how funny is it that in book one, Nicole is this mother of two and kind of like yeah. been through it all. She's 23. <laughs> oh, right, right. Rosemary's. Yeah, Rosemary's eighteen. Yeah, she feels, and and Rosemary's view of them is that they're incredibly old and mature, and and that she's. But Nicole's 
view of yeah. Rosemary is oh, this young naive and oh she's got her look still and you know that kind of, that kind of right, thing where right. she's talking about someone that age but it and the the kids are basically you barely see them I mean they're almost uh, completely yeah. invisible but uh, just to finish up the chronology so then after Fitzgerald passed away he had left a few instructions or uh, I, I think he had just sort of mentioned that, you know, shifting around tender is the night and maybe a chronological version of it would make sense. And then one of his literary executors called upon his old friend and the critic Edmund Wilson to put out an edition that would go in chronological order and kind of try to follow some of these instructions and see how it worked. And I don't think it really was successful and I don't think it made much of a splash. I think all the editions after that, I think, have gone back to the flashback version. Yeah, I mean, I I think the writing is beautiful and the plot is riveting that if we only knew the alternate version, I think it would be an incredibly strong novel. Mm. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's just more interesting yeah. to, to come across... I mean, I, I think immediately of like the talented Mr. Ripley and these kind of charismatic chameleon characters like Dick Diver and just how that first impression you have of through the lens of Rosemary in part one, her first impression of Dick, and then through the lens of Nicole in part two, her impression of Dick. So that's that's another fascinating contrast that would be lost if you had the alternate version. Mm. Yeah, and I should say that in either version, if people are used to the short stories, which obviously I think he usually wrote those in a a single weekend, if not a single day, and (laughs) are very unified. And The Great Gatsby is a very unified book. I mean, it marches along and it's, it's well plotted and it is kind of, you know, it would be hard to poke holes in the structure of that book. Tenders the Night's not like that. It's really, it was written over a period of, I think, eight years, and it feels Mm -hmm. that way. And it feels like you see things that you think, oh, this maybe was written at a different time, or this is a burst of energy here, and suddenly this feels like maybe it's going to, you know, there are threads that don't really get followed up, and then there are things that recur that you feel like it was maybe written over time. And it almost feels like you could excavate this book and see mm-hmm. all the different layers of the different periods when it was being worked on and different drafts and, and so on. So it's probably going to feel a little bit wild and woolly compared with something like The Great Gatsby, no matter which version you're reading of it. Yeah. and But it's still, I mean, it clocks in under 350 pages. Yeah. which Which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. It also has point of view shifts and things like that, where you kind of follow different characters around a little bit, which might be another thing that someone who's only read The Great Gatsby, where it's got the strong narrative presence and everything you see through the eyes of Nick Carraway, they might be a little surprised to see, or it's a little more interesting in some ways to kind of see Fitzgerald, who's growing and almost coming out from that tight narrative, you know, the you feel like he's looking to kind of explore more with what fiction can do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think maybe that's why I like the rawness of the side of paradise. Yeah. I prefer that to almost prefer it to great Gatsby. So, right. 
So we've kind of got a lot on the table. Why don't we take a quick break and then we'll come back and let's talk about the strengths and weaknesses. Sounds good. Okay, we're back. So, Mike, I guess we've kind of touched upon some strengths. Is there anything we haven't mentioned that you had on your list? Uh, let's see. I think the, the the complexity of the love between Nicole and Dick mm. is is something that I'm not sure you were getting that kind of literature around that time i think it was you know when i think of like you were saying wild and woolly and open-ended it it really kind of the book kind of plays with your your emotions about who owes debts Mm. which character owes debts to whom and the age and yeah they're roughly all of the same class so that intersectionality isn't there but I think the complexity of the love, the complexity of the sadness that builds up. And I, I think that's like just an incredible movement to it that you think you have a handle on where it's going to head. And I, I, I envy people reading it for the first time because mm. it, it they're just little turns here and there that are just so surprising. Like, I mean, without getting into the, the details of it, like in book two, the the car incident i mean that's like <laughs> you know there's there's stuff like that where <laughs> but i mean we, we can mention that nicole was a patient maybe not a formal patient, right but was like kind of under uh, under the care if you want to call love letter writing um with dick when he was a doctor at the sanitarium in part two and i mean that that could have been a novel in itself but you just get these little letters and having just seen their relationship in the French Riviera in part one, it's just beautifully done. This enclosed world of the sanitarium and this her enclosed world, her limited world. So, yeah, the sadness, I always I find it. I'm hard pressed to think of another novel that has this complexity of sadness. It is complexity of, of sadness and it's love, but it's also Fitzgerald introduces these real obstacles to their love. It's not just a love story of of boy meets girl and and everything is fine and healthy and all of that. And Nicole is troubled and she is a patient and Dick kind of takes her on. He's it's through love but it's also a rescue mission and it's this yeah. idea that he's going to keep her stable and that his life is going to be dedicated to what he can provide for her in just in terms of her mental health and you know it it does feel like a very ill-advised relationship to get into to be her doctor slash caretaker slash husband, basically. But watching him kind of make that effort and the way that the two of them deal with that and the way that it's not clear whether their marriage breaks up because of the weight of that or whether the weight of that, Mm -hmm. which way around. I mean, there was a quote from Zelda 
let's see. Let me pull this quote where Scott and Zelda had had this. It, first of all, it's interesting that he makes Dick a doctor because Fitzgerald himself obviously wasn't a doctor. But in some ways, I think this is how he came to view their relationship, that he had committed mm -hmm. to her and he was maybe... Maybe he was good for her and maybe not, but he obviously kind of projected something of their relationship into this relationship in the book and seems to have thought, maybe this is my mission in life is to keep her as sane as possible. Mm, yeah. So Fitzgerald once said, perhaps 50% of our friends and relatives would tell you in all honest conviction that my drinking drove Zelda insane. The other half would assure you that her insanity drove me to drink. Neither judgment <laughs> would mean anything. <laughs> so it just, I don't know. It just seems like uh -huh. he's the two of them trying to be what they can for one another in yeah. real life with Scott and Zelda and in the book with Dick and Nicole gives mm -hmm. this a kind of heaviness and a kind of heft, emotional heft that a lot of, Fitzgerald's other writing doesn't seem to have it's sort of superficial by comparison yeah I mean this specter of Zelda's being institutionalized in Baltimore for schizophrenia and while Fitzgerald rented a nearby house in the suburbs hmm. to work on this novel I mean this is I view it as like a Shakespearean tragedy. And mm. I, I, I find the novel Shakespearean in, in, in two respects. One, that this tragedy, that scene in book three when Nicole, the scene where she observes Dick and she says something like, you know, she felt sorry for him for mm. the first time that because he no longer controlled her. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way the tragedy unfolds, the way we just think of Dick as so strong. Mm -hmm. But then the emergence of Nicole in book three is is incredible. And I mean, the other aspect I find very Shakespearean is just the minor characters in the novel are terrific. Mm. I mean, right. they they really like Tommy, Tommy. Arbin and, <laughs> and Mary, Mary, and her, yeah. new, her new boyfriend or husband or whoever. I mean, the minor characters are great. I mean, the, you, you forget just how much you can do with a minor character. Yeah. And the McKiscos and... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Abe North. I mean, they are, they are very vivid. And part of me chafes a little bit at the, the beginning and the, the expatriate community. There's yeah. a feeling in <laughs> Fitzgerald sometimes that there's a party going on and there's funny things being said and you weren't there, but you're missing out because look at how glamorous and hilarious these people are. And and you read it and you think, well, it doesn't really strike me that way. It strikes me as they're being a little bit sophomoric and maybe a little bit immature. And what's <laughs> what redeems it here is uh -huh. that you feel like... That's important to establish that Rosemary is drawn to this group, but also it really, it's when all this falls apart. I mean, it's kind of before and after the crash, right? The stock market crash. It's sort of the exciting jazz age days and then the the aftermath of it. And that's kind of how the book was written. I mean, it was written in those years 
And what I like about, even though I kind of am annoyed by the, you know, that they're still talking about these hilarious things that happened when they were drunk and all of that, (laughs) it's sort of redeemed because you see the hangover, you see the consequences of the alcoholism setting in and the pathetic nature of them as they still think that they're strong and they're still looking to Dick to be kind of the life of the party and instead he can't do the things he used to be able to do and he's just becoming more and more sad and and used up and then to have that parallel with Scott Fitzgerald and the way that he felt about himself and his writing career and his life and to think that he was sort of thinking that that's where he was headed to someone who had once been on top of the world and was now kind of going to be a joke or to be a just sort of an afterthought and somebody people would look at and say nobody invites him anymore he's so pathetic we don't even want to have him hanging around it's just crushing yeah he's not the kind of guy who can lift somebody on his shoulders on water skis yes. anymore <laughs> and he's he's trying so hard and he's like i'll get it i'll get it and and everybody yeah. in the boat is just kind of like okay one more try but you can tell that they're all thinking ah this old man he's pathetic and he used to be he could do these things with ease and it's yeah that's a very vivid scene yeah, I mean, it, it, you know what's interesting? I probably knew this, but I forgot it, is that F. Scott was not very fond of the French. Mm. <laughs> Which I just find that it's kind of offensive. <laughs> that he, yeah. You know, that he was so wealthy, so romantic, and so nostalgic in his life, and he wasn't able to appreciate the French. And he and Hemingway would actually kind of argue because Hemingway was very much in love with the French mm. and the Spanish and wanted to get to know them and learn the language. And F. Scott really stuck to the expats, to mm-hmm. the Americans, yeah. which is to the way you were saying he was kind of living in these like memories of these drunken nights that he thought were so much fun and had the vigor of youth. It is kind of pathetic that mm-hmm. he wasn't getting to know the French and kind of like lived in a fancy hotel that he and he created the scene himself like he was the one who used to show up and invite his American friends and yeah, yeah. I mean that or the Italians I mean there's a scene where he's getting oh. beaten up by the Italian police which apparently <laughs> right. is something similar happened to Scott Fitzgerald yeah, that is. I think that's why I'm chafing too. Is not just the <laughs> the the part about it being a party that I didn't attend, and so I can't really see how just how hilarious everything was. But the fact that they're kind of the ugly Americans roaming through Europe, and that has always irritated me, and it it might irritate some readers too. That you feel like mm-hmm. the French and the Italians are there to be this funny cast of characters who are right. talk in broken English and can't make their meaning and you know but you're supposed to come in and just take charge and say now look here I'm going to go to the embassy if I don't get some satisfaction and you can't treat us this way and and all of that and you think I've seen scenes like that and I've always kind of <laughs> been on the side against the Americans who are just kind of a uh, bull in a china shop trying to make their way through Europe that way yeah, I mean, and those are great scenes with Baby Warren. I mean, talking about great minor characters, Baby Warren. I mean, what a wasp yeah. first name. To, um, 
Nicole's sister, baby yeah. Lauren. Now you mentioned there wasn't much class difference among the characters, but there's a there's a, but money plays a big part. And yeah. that's a good example. So even though Dick is kind of the, the hero in the earliest years when he's a, a doctor who's on the rise and he's he's well respected and everything, but the Warrens come in with money. And oh right, they fund the they fund, fund the sanitarium. The, they yeah. fund the sanitarium, yeah, and right. that's a big deal. And Rosemary, who is a successful actress, but they're not from money. And Rosemary is kind of funding her mother and herself. That her career is going to be the way that those two get to join this glamorous yeah. expatriate life. And then the the other thing with the money is baby. And she's got the money and she uses it. And Nicole, at one point, Rosemary kind of admires the way Nicole shops. That mm-hmm. She's oh, able right. to just pull the trigger on stuff and say, we need this, 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 and this. And just kind of go on these shopping trips where she's not worried about the cost or not worried about getting too much, but just sort of getting with it. And you feel all, I mean, that's the old Fitzgerald thing, right? That he's he's yeah. constantly pulled toward that and he had people in his life the murphys and the other expatriates that he knew in france who had money like that and he was always trying to write his way into that kind of a league but he was just fascinated by the idea i think that you could live life with the way that you lived life with more money was uh, significant enough to constantly fascinate him and compel him toward it yeah, no, that's that's true. The use of money and the way by Fitzgerald in the novel and the way money comes into play, even among the rich, always comes into play, is very much there. I was just more, you know, I wrote on page 115 on the margins years ago, I wrote, does anybody have a job? <laughs> <laughs> other than Rosemary. <laughs> I think that's, you know, because I had been reading a lot of Orwell at the time, and I think, you know, I love this book, but <laughs> there, there is something about, like, you know, if you work in a job and you work 15-hour days and you come home and you pick up this book, yeah, <laughs> right. you might just feel like, wait, w- so what's the issue? Like, what's the problem, you know? <laughs> yeah, so. and Hemingway said that that's why he thought Tender is the Night was reviewed so poorly when it first came out was mm-hmm. because it had happened after the stock market crash and it had came out during the depression and everybody was reading it saying, aren't we a little bit tired of that jazz yeah. age? The Fitzgerald And they associated Fitzgerald with that because he had become mm-hmm. famous with this side of paradise and the great Gatsby during that era. And so it just sort of viewed it as, oh, Fitzgerald's up to his old tricks. He thinks everybody's got a lot of money and they're running around Europe and he's not dealing with reality the way the rest of us are. Yeah, but I mean, what there is something very, very enticing about the the glamorous life. And <laughs> I will I'll freely admit that I, I mean, the first time I read it, I not exactly looking for career advice in this book, but I think it did sort of point out like, well, wouldn't it be nice to do this? Wouldn't it be nice to go swimming? There's this passage where Rosemary goes swimming and she says, oh yeah, Rosemary felt that this swim would become the typical one of her life, the one that would always pop up in her memory at the mention of swimming. Mm. And, you know, it's like experiencing the best of life, the pleasures. And there is something 
there's an aspect of it that's pathetic, but then there's an aspect of it that's very human and why we want to read about glamorous lives. And we right. want, you know, we wouldn't mind participating in a little bit of glamour. Yeah. And for some people, it might be brand name designer clothing. And I read that and, and it, it doesn't affect me at all. And for some people, it might be, well, this character owns 30 cars and I would read that and think that doesn't affect me at all. But when you read stories of people who have freedom to do whatever they want all day long and yeah. who can travel wherever they want all day long. And when they travel, it's they're, they're avoiding a lot of the hassles that a lot of us deal with that they can roll in and take up rooms in a hotel and, Oh, my suite is across the hall kind of thing. And <laughs> when I read that stuff, I do think, Oh yeah, that I could see why that would draw Fitzgerald to it. I mean, he started out life working in mm -hmm. jobs that he really hated advertising and so on. And you can see where he always kind of admired the people around him who didn't have to work. Yeah. I mean, the, the Daily Mail, which I like to read perversely, ironically, likes to chronicle where Leo DiCaprio is swimming and bathing and, <laughs> and walking around and going to clubs. And someone wrote the comment, Leo must get very tired walking and swimming from place to place. <laughs> So, but, you know, I mean, back to Nicole's emergence in book three about mm -hmm. what kind of meaning you should have in your life. And maybe the the bar, we, we set the bar too high or we set the bar in a way we don't even see it. You know, she has this great moment in three page 312 when she starts to spend more time with Tommy Barbin. And she says, how good to have things like this, to be worshipped again, to pretend to have a mystery. Mm. Um, and it's you know the writing is really stunning there's flowery prose mm -hmm. that of course he's capable of but then there's lines like that he has this line he says dick could possibly have made up rosemary he could never have made up her mother <laughs> talking about her her americanness and what she wants for her right. daughter and i mean Rosemary calls her mom all the time with updates about her love for for Dick. It's just, yeah. oh man, that's it's dated, but it also feels very much like, yeah, you can imagine a, an eighteen year old or right and a twenty three year old behaving that way, you know, when she's got essentially a stage mother who is also her constant companion and best friend, but also almost yeah. like a warden or a jailer and a, a constant nag or, you know, the overseeing is kind of too tight sometimes, but she's still in the process of coming out of that. She hasn't yet aged out of it. She's 18. And so it's sort of like you see her trying to resist her mother's control and trying to gain some independence. But at the same time, she really wants to tell her mother about how much she loves Dick or how much <laughs> she, you know, how fascinated she is by him. And now I'm in love with Dick. You know, she, she treats her like a confidant or a best friend because that's who she has. She doesn't have somebody else who plays that role. Her mother is kind of like the constant presence. And you do feel like their relationship is... It's in a way it's nice that it's so close, but it feels kind of unhealthy as well. 
I'd be interested to know if there are readers out there who um, identify more with Rosemary than Nicole. I think that's, mm. you know, that that's something that the reader, the first time reader has to kind of f- finds themselves being on Nicole's side or Rosemary's side. That's really interesting because in a way, yes, I mean, she's kind of our, the reader's stand in, right? She's introducing us to these people and we see yeah. them through her eyes and she's more stable and all of that. But, but by book three, I don't think you can really care about Rosemary as much anymore. She's kind of, she kind of goes by the wayside in a way. It's, it becomes so much about Dick and Nicole and you get so captivated by the idea that these two are doomed together and they've made this devil's bargain with one another. And yet, I mean, the way I was thinking about it is the marriage is kind of like the Titanic a vessel <laughs> that it starts out grand and full of life, a party, and then it ends up a total wreck. And what you're doing in this book as you read it is watching the ship go down and you get to see how, almost like in the movie Titanic, you get to see what happens to a ship when it hits an iceberg and you see the marriage cracking apart and, and plummeting into the depths. But then what you really are watching too are the two people who jump into the water and they're trying to survive the the wreckage and that part is heartbreaking and rosemary at that point just becomes kind of like somebody you kind of want to get out of their way yeah but i agree but then her maturity is an interesting twist when she you know, yeah yeah spoiler alert when she when she turns down dick yeah yeah Yeah. rosemary i guess you're right that at that point i've matured beyond where dick and nicole are or i could say where scott and zelda were and Mm -hmm. so in that sense i kind of identify with rosemary as a yeah she's she's 25 and she's already older than these two in a way yeah i mean there there's so many I think the, the the way that marriage is sinking, there's so many observers. Collis Clay, the Yale, <laughs> the Yale hanger-on who's just smitten <laughs> by Rosemary and won't go away. <laughs> but you know, just he's just so happy to be part of the the scene. And then I love the the Mary philosophy, what I call the philosophy ep- episode near the end where she confronts Dick and says, why aren't you nice like that? You can be. Mm. And then he, he basically says, you're boring me. And she kind of presses him and he goes, you're all so dull, he said. Mm-hmm. And she goes, but we're all there is, cried Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Like, who who are you? Who do you think you are? And then the way the novel ends, how perfect is that ending? Oh, I mean, it's with, devastating. And it's, yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Hemingway's Isn't It Pretty to Think So, where oh, yeah, it, yeah. it's the perfect sentiment, but the writing is perfect too. Like, you can credit the writer with capturing the right tone in the words and the tone of the last sentence and the you know I, I guess we won't spoil it, but the way that Fitzgerald gets that point across is yeah. the rhetoric that he chooses, the way that he conveys that is so perfect. Yeah, and and when I read it the first time, I was stunned. Mm. I was like, "What? 
Yeah. Like, like I need, I need, <laughs> I need like 15 more pages of this. And I was like, you know, and then I was like, he's dead. I'm never going to get it. Like, oh my God, what a, you know? And I think I might have started to re, uh, just read the beginning again. I was just like, oh, let me, yeah. you, know, you always want to return to when things were perfect. And I think that's, it's probably why I've reread it so many times is that I just love the, the way the glitz wears off, the marriage wears down. I just... Yeah. And that you can have a tragedy that is Shakespearean without it being, you know, six dead bodies on the floor in the final scene of the play, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, that right. it can be... There can be a kind of tragedy in the life that is left for people to live. And Fitzgerald, having written it and having based it on his own marriage and his own love of his life and his wife and everything and himself he is looking ahead to what looks like to him the life that's left to them and seeing the tragedy and potential tragedy in it is it's just a heartrending ending yeah i mean it's, i i struggle to think of a, a better ending than that and i i mean it's such a fate that Probably a lot of people whose lives are not as interesting end up. I mean, that's, mm. you know, that, I think that's the part that really gets to me that Dick is almost like a superhero for large parts of the book. And then to see that ending. Mm. So complete this sentence for me. The mm. ideal reader for this book is blank. <laughs> All right, you're gonna hate me, but I, I, I think it's someone who is happy, oh. someone, someone, <laughs> someone, in, someone interested in pleasure. That <laughs> it's it's a test of happiness, having it all, and what's underneath it, the realities of disillusionment, because Dick fails. Are you saying the ideal reader is someone who's happy because they shouldn't be happy, and this will remind well, them about, of reality? I don't know about that part, but I, I, I think it's he was kind of aiming the book at himself, if I can mm -hmm. say that. Yeah, and so I, I do think Fitzgerald had a pretty fantastic life, other than the fact that he died at forty-four. Which, but yeah, I think it's it's maybe not a a book for somebody who is just emotionally topsy-turvy and mm. oh so you have to be have some stability in your life in order to have the strength to read it that if you're unhappy this yeah. this could break you something like that yeah yeah i, mean, I was very happy when i first read it and um <laughs> i'm generally a, an optimistic person so that may explain why i've read it six times yeah Right. Because you, which is interesting because some people might say, well, why wouldn't you look for books with happy endings if you're optimistic? But my life is happy. So I'm, mm. I'm, I'm saturated with happiness. I don't, you don't need more of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, another ideal reader for this book, I think, is are people who love to travel, love, mm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, are fascinated by the 20s. I mean, you know, yeah. it, what a generation it was. I mean, everyone's written about it, talked about it, but I, I do think it is hard to recreate the kind of creative energy that existed in the 20s in Europe. And this book is very much about that, but also what's beyond that, hmm. uh, that 
glitz couldn't last. A scene can never last. Mm. Right. And I'll, I'm going to steal from something that I, you and I exchanged by text where we were talking about this, and I said it went from glitz to fits. the arc of the book you end up just with Fitzgerald I I agree with you that he had a fantastic life but he was in a lot of pain for a lot of that life it's sort of like the deal he made with going with Zelda at the beginning of it and taking her on and as exciting as she was and as just absolutely gorgeous as she was I'm still always yeah. You know, a lot of times you, you hear about these great beauties and you see the photos of them and you kind of think, oh, well, they had a different standard in, in their era, I guess. But there is a photo of hers that still just blows me away for how beautiful she was. And then for him to kind of have her presence and her vitality and her beauty and just her her whole uh, personality and everything and to be living that kind of high life that they lived. And then for the final years, for it to be so just depressing and and crushing and physically difficult and mentally even more difficult. It's really uh, uh, in his battles with alcoholism. Every time I see somebody in one of his books or stories who are trying to quit drinking and and who it seems like every book somebody is drinking gin so people won't smell it and (laughs) (laughs) and the idea that he's always trying to kind of excuse his having been drunk or trying to disguise it and hide it from people and everything it just it feels like Fitzgerald is sometimes it feels like he's keeping things together for our sake as readers, that his devotion to writing and to literature and to trying to create beauty through this poetic prose of his is the only thing that's kind of keeping him afloat and everything else in his life is trying to pull him under. Yeah, I mean, the beauty and alcoholism, the one thing I I, I did, uh, it really stood out to me this reading is that Nicole is stunning enough that there are three allusions to her having dog-like hair, Mm. the plush elegance of a top dog (laughs) that she can withstand that I was thinking like, boy, I I don't know if I've ever heard heard of positive reference (laughs) to a dog for a female character, but there you go. And, you know, when I was in Paris, in March, and we did a Hemingway walking tour, which I had never done all the times I've been in Paris. They were talking about Hemingway and Fitzgerald drinking, and they said something I had never heard before, which is that the wine back then was half the strength of it is mm. what it is now. It was about 6%, so it was kind of like beer. Mm. So these descriptions of drinking bottle after bottle, it's very different from the level. So that's my little two-cent defense of Fitzgerald's drinking. Right. Okay, <laughs> well, let's leave things there. Mike Palindrove, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike for joining me. Tender is the night. Worth a read, everyone. Some flaws, but that's not unusual for a gem. Right? We're going to talk to Fitzgerald's biographer in a few weeks. That should be a fun one for everyone. 
We're also going to travel to Haiti next time with the Queen of Black Historical Fiction, according to book list, Vanessa Riley, who will be telling us a story of a queen and a queen in exile. And after that, I think we'll turn to Henry James, the master, for one of his classic short stories. I'm headed up to the Pacific Northwest for some vacation and some family activity, but I think we can keep up our schedule so you won't need to miss your fix of the history of literature. <laughs> all you all you junkies, <laughs> my friends, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 